Hi, and welcome back to Brentwood Stories. For our final episode of Quarantine Conversations, me and Peter are joined by Robert Oton. Robert is a Long Island writer and teacher with strong ties to Brentwood. While he may be best known for his horror writing, including Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares, Peter and I discover that Robert is a man of many talents. Robert, Peter, and I discuss horror, journalism, radio, ramen, and Cthulhu in no particular order in this episode of Quarantine Conversations. Also, on a technical note, I must apologize for some of the audio drops later in the interview. I hope they are not too distracting. Enjoy. Yeah, um, my name is Robert Otone, and I am a teacher and author uh, from Long Island. And um, I was very lucky to uh, spend a lot of time, a lot of my younger years in Brentwood. Um, my dad was a teacher at the high school the uh, in the G-Guide DiPietro Learning Center. And uh, he ran the radio station there. He was in charge of the radio program. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him at the school and had a radio show and everything. Uh, my grandmother lived in uh, Brentwood and my cousins and stuff. So spent a lot of time there growing up. So a lot of fun, a lot of good memories. My sister then became uh, the station manager at WXBA in the high school and Again, spend a, spend a little more time there with, because of her. And uh, yeah, and I just, um, I have nothing but uh, good memories of, of, you know, spending time in, in Brentwood with uh, my dad and Jerry Steiner, who used to work for the uh, school district there. And uh, a lot of really fun, talented people that I'm still very friendly with uh, nowadays, you guys included, of course, excellent representatives of the library. So um, nothing but love for Brentwood and the library and the high school. What are some of your earliest memories of the library? Uh, I remember my mom uh, taking me there before I would have to go into the radio station to visit my dad. That was, you know, we would have a little time and I would just kind of walk around the library. And I was always, this is always the funny thing. I, I always was amazed at comparatively how bigger it was than the library in East Islip, which was the one I was used to going to. So like, it was always like two times the size it felt like the, the one on the size of now is is big as well but the Brentwood one is still there and uh, actually my mom um is still does uh, or she was doing um sewing and knitting and stuff at the Brentwood library so it's, it's really cool you know it's like always been there and it's always been a part of our family and our life in some way oh, that's very cool we have uh like you've already mentioned a few things that we have to ask more about with the Brentwood connection. I didn't know that you had a, you said you had, you had a radio show at the high school? Yeah, I had a, a, a radio show because my dad ran the, the program. I was involved and I was super interested. I still have my FCC license and um, I, I did the radio program there, got my license and I had a uh, radio show on the station 88.1 on your FM dial. And oh. uh yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was cool. I, I wasn't super into the like, I'm going to read news and do the, you know, tell stories, stuff like that. I was all about the music, man. But uh, nice. it was, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I had to, I was able to bring some friends on and stuff and play some, you know, um, like indie bands and whatnot. So that was a lot of fun, too. So um, I always loved like Halloween time when I had my show on the radio station because I would just play like nothing but spooky Halloween music and that like you know, it was always a part of me. So I guess like the horror writer thing kind of goes along with loving Halloween. Wow. Was, yeah. what, did you, what was your show called? Mm -hmm. It's really dumb. It was called, 
<laughs> it was called the, the I was really into professional wrestling at the time, so I called it the the brush with greatness. It was so stupid. A brush with greatness. It's so stop, bad. Stop, that's great. <laughs> Oh my God. It's, uh, yeah, it was so much fun and, uh, it was such a valuable program. And I remember my dad talking a lot about how you know, he had a lot of students that actually did go into broadcasting because of it. So it was a really worthwhile program for the, the high school. Um, when they had it, they, they turned out a lot of really talented people who went into the industry. So he would always call it like a feather in his cap whenever one of his students would go on to something. And so many of them did. And, um, he was very much involved in his students' life in a big way or lives in a big way. Um, and I really, I, I think I always knew that, but it really hit me when my father passed away in 2019 and at his wake, hundreds of his former students showed up. Wow. And it was really touching and really beautiful to see. And these are just faces of like, Brentwood graduates and, and Brentwood residents and people that I knew. And I was like, this is crazy. And it's like, so I always feel like inexplicably tied to Brentwood. Um, you know, there, there are certain towns on Long Island I feel very deeply connected to and Brentwood is absolutely one of them for sure. That's amazing. And I know, um, yeah, I've spoken to people who talk about owing so much to the, their time at the radio station at Brentwood high school. Um, Peter knows um, Celia who works at the library and I know her son got his start there. And that's something to really be, so, you must be so proud of uh, seeing that, that you, uh, that your dad um, helped those people find su such success. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the great people just, if you really, your head almost spins at the, the quality of people and the, the quality of talent over the years that, you know, he got to teach and got to work with. And he he never was like, I'm taking credit for their success. And it was never like that. It was more along the lines of like, they're very talented at this. And I think that this talent should be nurtured. And that's what he did. And I think if you talk to any of his students, they would probably echo those statements. And, um, you know, I'm like I said, I'm still in touch with a few and they've become, you know, parents and you know, supportive parents and giving parents and just generally beautiful people. And um, you know, I was lucky to know them when I was a kid, and I'm lucky to know them as an adult. Very cool. Do you do you remember um, how your own start with the uh, with the radio show that you did? How did that? Um, do you remember when you first went in to start that show? Were you nervous at all, or like figuring all that out? I was, um, the first time, the first few times I did it, my dad ran the board, which was always the most intimidating part. And, um, but that was only like the first couple times. Over time, I, I wanted to learn the board myself and I wanted to learn the editing and, um, you know, the timing and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, I learned from him, <clears throat> excuse me, but I also learned from some of the people that he had working there as well. Um, and they were amazing to, to teach me. They took the time to really impart a lot of editing and, and announcing wisdom to me. And um, it was a slow process. It's very difficult to run the board, like a radio, an old, old school radio board. Like this is before computers. Very difficult. Uh, you know, the, there's the different faders and the switches and doing this and that and fading things in, fading them out, bringing them up, 
putting them down. Why isn't this working? Why isn't that cart rewound? Why didn't, you know, like all these things that you have to remember. And, um, you know, learning all of that was exciting, but it was nerve wracking a little bit too. But, you know, and I, I tell this to my students now, I'm very lucky to, to be in a district where, um, you know, we have a lot of freedom to, to kind of teach however we want. They're very, the, the administration is very hands-off, which is super rare on Long Island, but um, we really get an opportunity to impart the idea of, you know, everybody learns in their own way. And a lot of us learn by repetition and doing something a lot and going into it and really studying. And it's the same kind of thing with radio. The more you do it, the better you get. It's that um, it's almost like that Malcolm Gladwell quote, the, the 10,000 hours, you don't get successful unless you dedicate 10,000 hours to something. So I kind of impart that to my students. And I think I learned that through working at the radio station and, you know, editing and running my own show after my dad was like, OK, it's your turn. <laughs> like You're going to run the board now, dude. Um, yeah. So it, it's not easy, but it's fun. And, you know, computers make it a little easier now, but it's it's still just as complicated. Editing and recording a podcast and stuff is just as difficult as doing a radio show. It's not they're comparable, you know. When was the last time you were in a radio booth? Oh, God. The last time I was in a radio booth, I think um, I think probably 2002 was the last time I did one of my shows. It's been a long time. I think I have it on tape still. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm I really intrigued by the brush with greatness, I have to say. Um, <laughs> They're so bad. And it's uh, it was like contemporary music mostly. Yeah, the, the radio station was great because, it, you know, obviously as long as it was clean, as long as whatever we were playing was clean, we could play whatever we wanted. There was freedom there. You know, there's... Um, other radio stations that are in high schools on Long Island, they do not allow that, but Brentwood always did. Um, so there was a lot of support there. So I, I always did like, keep in mind, this was 2002 and I would play some ska and I would play, <laughs> I would play, if you remember swing dancing had a moment for about two months in 2002. So I would play some swing. <laughs> oh, get your finger on the pulse. Oh, absolutely. Um, I played a lot of like, um, Deftones at the time. Um, the stuff that I was way into. I also played a lot of 80s. I think if I was to have a radio show now, it would be like a nice mix of modern and 80s and maybe some 70s as well. But I, back then, it was definitely mostly contemporary modern, then modern stuff and 80s. And I played records. I actually played like vinyl. Oh. Like there was there was a an enormous wall of vinyl that I wish I had the forethought to be like, um, you know, when, when the station was, you know, when it's not there anymore, I wish I had the forethought to be like, I'm taking these, <laughs> just take as much vinyl as humanly possible, but I didn't. Did, call, did callers call into shows like yours? They did. Yeah. We used to get uh, callers all the time. I would probably average, I did like an hour long show and I would average like two calls a show, which I thought at the time, like, that's cool. People are listening. That's fun. And, uh, you know, depending on the time of year, too, like Christmas time, uh, the holidays and stuff, a lot more calls would come in because people would want to hear certain Christmas tunes. And my dad was always big into doing like the Christmas, like spectacular kind of show. It was like an all day thing where they rotated in 
it was really kind of cool. So like a lot of his alumni would come back for the Christmas show and they would cycle in different hours with him and like some of his friends and stuff. The, the Christmas shows were always a lot of fun. And, and your sister, you said was, um, she ran the station too? Yeah, my dad retired um, when I graduated in 2002. My dad retired the same year. And then the following year, my sister took over. Uh, so it was like one O-tone and then to another O-tone. Uh, so that was a really cool thing. And then, you know, over time, they started scaling back the radio program in the school. And uh, they, eventually she moved on to another another district. Okay. Wow. So when you were um, graduating high school, did you at the time know you were interested in teaching or were you thinking maybe uh, something with the radio or, or did you know you were interested in writing horror at the time? I think I, I was always interested in writing uh, in some way. Horror was always a thing that I always liked. I didn't write a lot of it when I was younger. I knew that I always wanted to write. I, didn't, I definitely didn't want to become a teacher. I wasn't, I, it's such a mistake. I wish I did. <laughs> I wish the second I got out of high school, I was like, I'm going to go be a teacher because I wouldn't have had to jump through 8 million hoops and spend over $1,800 in tests alone. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Instead, oh, you, became, I got, you became a teacher later. I did. Yeah, I did. Which is, you know, being a teacher is great. I love it. But I, I wish I had done it sooner. But I, in my mind, when I was 18, 19, and I was getting my, uh, associates and then my bachelor's my thinking wasn't I wasn't thinking down the line I wasn't thinking in the future I was thinking like well how can I make money doing what I love and what I love is writing so you know I, I did a lot of screenwriting I did a lot of playwriting and I won awards and stuff and I got some fellowships and whatnot out of that so like I knew I was like pretty good at writing I guess and then from there I just went into journalism and from there I went into social media and copywriting and it oh, was wow. fun like journalism was fun and then the rise of clickbait happened and that's when it stopped being fun because I went from covering the Long Island serial killer to like writing about you know the Kardashians and writing about stuff that I just did not care about at all. And, you know, when my, the stuff that I cared about, like the, the Gilgo beach and talking about, you know, the middle East and writing articles about stuff that actually mattered to me, technology, entertainment, when that stuff stopped getting as many clicks as my, um, um, what are the <sighs> obituaries, the obituaries that I was writing for famous people and the clickbait articles about social media and, and reality stars when my article stopped getting as many hits as those two kinds of things, that's when I kind of realized I need to get out of this. Oh, wow. So from there, I went into the private sector and went into uh, social media strategy and copywriting for a few different companies on Long Island and some freelance um, work done for some companies in LA and some in Connecticut, but most they were mostly here. They were on the East end and they were, in the, you know, the, the Western Suffolk area. And that would be like writing, um, 
the social media things for a company that would get a lot of uh, attention. Yeah, a lot of tweeting was involved. This was this was when Twitter was like really starting to rise as a prominent platform for people. This would have been around, I guess, 2012, 12 or 13, maybe. I was on. I was using Twitter a lot um, at the time for you know corporate gains. Um, right, trying my best to really establish an identity for a company on social media is very difficult. So when you see a company with a, a social media, it's really funny and really and really good at what they do. Like, I'm just gonna throw some out there, but like, Whataburger has probably the best social media presence out there. When you see them do something and you wanna be that good, it really shows, when you see a really good social media account for a company, one that like consistently makes you laugh and is consistently engaging, and does provide interesting content, you know that there's really great leadership at the top of that organization because so often the leadership will come down on you if you try to do anything interesting or funny or a little weird, um, whether or not you know it's going to do well or not. There's so much pushback. Um, a lot of the stuff that I wanted to do, uh, I would say like of, of all of the things I wanted to do, maybe. 5% of the things that I pitched got done because everything else, they were just like, no, that's too weird. And then I would see other companies do it. You think social media is this like, it, it can be a force for bad and it can be an echo chamber, but it can also be a force for like levity and it can make you, it, it can really inspire you. It can make you smile. It can take your mind off things. Right. And all of the best companies do that. Like um, Arby's, I hate I hate saying this because it sounds like I'm like plugging these companies, but they do do a good job, you know. So when they're given the freedom to do stuff, and and I think you know more companies should. There's a, there's a good balance, right? Like you shouldn't try so hard that it becomes transparent that you're trying to be cool, mm. but at the same time, like really put somebody who's weird and funny and talented in charge of your social media, and you will see you will it'll pay dividends, like whatever salary you're giving them if you just like take them off the leash and go nuts, like it'll, it pays for itself. That's really interesting. And that's, and for someone who it seems like you were really cynical about the uh, whole clickbait thing. And yet you've come to really appreciate the social media as its own art in itself. Yeah. Because, and you know, it's, I don't, I feel bad. Like I, the clickbait stuff, you can tell nobody goes into journalism to write clickbait articles, right? Like, I didn't go into journalism wanting to write about, oh, my God, Kim Kardashian's new dog. I didn't go into it for that. I, you know, my journalism heroes were Robert Graysmith, Jimmy Breslin. Like, these are the guys that I wanted to be. Paul Avery. Like, the, these are the dudes. And... I started like going into that. I talked to Robert Graysmith when I started investigating the Long Island serial killer. And I needed to know, uh, for those who don't know, Robert Graysmith is the guy who wrote the book on the Zodiac killer. And he's the one who drew the famous picture of the Zodiac killer wearing the hood with the um, crosshairs logo. So I got to talk to him and he gave me some really great advice about like, 
hey, you know, um, don't get pulled down every avenue because it's very easy for it to happen. Um, do your best to work with people close to the case or people who seem on the level. Like he gave me valid advice. And then all of a sudden to go from that, something I was so passionate about and loved, as you know, because, um, you know, you had me thankfully um, do my, my Gilgo Beach presentation with the library. But yeah. It, it, which was amazing. I, I had so much fun doing that. It was so sweet of you to let me do it. But um, going from stuff like that to soulless stuff, no journalist wants to do that. And they may be good at it, but it's it's not what they want to do. I, I feel like with the social media thing, like there's like, even with that though, there's also the question of, I agree with you, like, there are some of those accounts that are really funny and really good and they're good in themselves. But like even um, also everybody like feels the need to do social media, like even our libraries and stuff, like we have social media things to promote, um, to promote our different uh, services, our programs. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's still this like, there's still this question of what it should be because it's not always the thing you're doing. It's like you're doing something like at Arby's. It's you're giving them a uh, a burger. You're selling a burger, and then social <laughs> media is like a tangential thing. But I, I don't know. Or, sh or should social media sort of be its own service that you're um, offering and finding your unique way to phrase? Or is it like I don't know? I feel like I feel like I find it too dis more. Uh, more f philosophical a topic than maybe it is but no but it is it absolutely yeah. is and and the way i look at, at social media is it, it's that's meant to be your opening handshake or opening discussion with somebody right like that's what it's meant to be i follow you guys on Inst i'm more of an instagram guy than i am a twitter guy mm. i follow the brentwood library on instagram and i like the, the Brentwood Library stuff. I think what you guys do is good. Personally, I like it. There are libraries on Long Island. Them that I don't as good a job. But it's nice to see them do something. It's nice to see them try, you know. And But I think, and I'm not saying this because I'm on this right now. But I think Brentwood does a very good job on their social media because you're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. You're putting out interesting pictures, you're conveying information and you're talking about programming and you're talking about things that are going on with the library. Now, you know, do you want to do that in a funny, silly way? There is a library on Long Island that does post some funny stuff, but you could do that too. Everybody could do that. And then all of a sudden, all of the libraries suddenly become the same kind of voice. And I don't know that you want that, right? So it's all about finding your niche, but social media to me is always meant to be the opening handshake. And, you okay. know, the, yeah, that, that's how I look at it. So like, and on, on, I post every day on Instagram and I've seen an uptick in my followers and stuff and my engagement. And like, I enjoy it. I think it's fun. So, but you know, you have to learn like the algorithm and stuff and social media is always changing and especially Instagram, that's the one I focus on. But like every time I post something, I mean for it to be the first time somebody's coming 
to my Instagram account. So, so just as a, as a person then with an Instagram account, but also someone who's uh, trying to convey like, you know, your authorship and things like that. Do you feel like it's, it's weird because in one sense, if you just use social media and it's like, it's my uh, Instagram or Facebook, you can in some sense be authentic and think I have this impulse to express this or talk to this person and you just do it. And that's like an authentic thing. But then you, uh, but everybody like they say is trying to seem a certain way, which is inevitable. And as an author, that must be especially true. Like you'd want to see, uh, seem interesting or say something that's relevant to people who might be interested in your writing. But I guess that's a question of authenticity with it, right? It absolutely is. And I always just, I like to err on the side of, if you're coming to my Instagram, I'm either going to share something. My stuff kind of falls into three categories. It's either going to be a picture of my dumb face because the Instagram algorithm demands it. Um, in order the algorithm for you, demands it. It does. Yeah. You need to, if you're an individual or an entity of some sort, you must have pictures with faces in it in order for the algorithm to push that picture in front of more eyes. Really? Yeah. It's creepy, but it's how it works. So like yesterday I posted a picture of myself. I took a break at work and I went outside because I, I needed to, I wear a face shield on top of my regular mask with a filter in it. So I have the whole, I look like a stormtrooper. So I go outside to get some fresh air. I, I go, I take my face shield up. I take my mask down just to get some fresh air. And I'm eating a Slim Jim. And I have the Slim Jim in my mouth. I took a dumb selfie. And I posted it on Instagram. And I, I wrote just a silly thought that I had about why I, I didn't want to get my doctorate anymore. And all, all I can think of, because I used to want to get a doctorate, because I have I have one master's and I'm working on two others right now. So mm -hmm. I'll have three altogether by June of this year. But I used What's to want to get a doctorate. Do uh, the doctorate, I was going to get it in English literature. I was going to get it in that. I'm not getting it anymore. I'm not, I don't want to waste yeah. the time and the money. <laughs> but, there should be um, some sort of mathematical equivalent that three masters just automatically equals a doctor. <laughs> it's like Monopoly. It's like three houses equals a hotel. <laughs> exactly. You should just be able to switch it in. <laughs> I think that's, I, I'd be all, all about that. But um, yeah, so I, I posted about that and people commented and they liked it and stuff. And I was like, okay, that's cool. I'm happy that that made the point. But then today I posted a ridiculous picture of Marilyn Manson from like the late nineties, early two thousands with Michael Stipe and some other musicians and stuff. And again, same thing. So like, I don't know, I just like to have fun. And I think, you know, I think that's the best, strategy for social media is to always try to be silly be a little silly have a little fun and really give them a sense that you have a strong personality and i think brentwood does that by like i said highlighting things you have going on but also noting the service that you provide and I, I, one that comes to mind was there was a post the other day about hey things are getting hot now we have to kind of not have people i think it was something along the lines of like hey you know COVID is, is spiking again so we're going to go back to like contactless delivery for or contactless pickup or something like that i thought that that was the case if i'm wrong i'm sorry but 
I feel like I saw something like that. And I remember thinking like, yeah. that's a valuable service. That's a valuable service to the community to let them know. That's really good to hear. <laughs> Is it one of you two that runs the social media? <laughs> no. no, no, no. Your compliments were wasted. <laughs> well, pass them along. You know, you know, whoever is running it, I, I think they're doing a good job. Well, wait, well, and what were your uh, three types of posts? The face? Yo, yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's either like a personal thing, like a face, again, to fool the algorithm with some ridiculous comment or whatever. Something that inspires me. So one day I did. Um, a list of like five authors that have always inspired me. I put like their pictures and I, I put their names and I wrote their notable works to me. And then the third one is just absurd, just absurd, silly things like today posting the, the Marilyn Manson picture. So for my Fridays are always welcome to Friday. Try to be as cool as and I post a picture of whatever and I write. Try, and so today was try to be as cool as Twiggy Ramirez, Courtney Love, Marilyn Manson and Michael Stipe hanging out and enjoying each other's fellowship. I don't know. And then I was put a good. Bunch of, <laughs> and then I put a bunch of weird hashtags and people liked it. <laughs> wow. Those it's are good. <laughs> it's just silly. Like if you're not having fun doing something, like I know a lot of people who post like like a lot of authors will post like, here's a picture of my dog. And like, who doesn't like a dog picture? But at the same time, like your fans don't care. Like they care about your dog, I'm sure, but at the same time, like Give them a little something. Give them a little more. Give them a little more. You know, that's my feeling with social media. Yeah. It doesn't hurt to let people in, right? Like, especially now, like we want, we want connection and interaction, right? It's okay to let people in. Yeah. There's one, there's a great one with uh, that Cormac McCarthy had up with him on a dune buggy. (laughs) I didn't see that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> there, are definitely, there are definitely some authors that you want to see on social media, like uh, like J.D. Salinger, Cormac McCarthy, like the ones you, that are the recluses. But I think uh, I don't know, I don't know there, how long that would last once they did it. There's this one, um, this one um, author that I follow. He never posts. Uh, his name is Chad Colchin. He wrote The Average American Male. I think he's as close to, like, if Brett Easton Ellis, the guy who wrote American Psycho, if there was ever yeah. going to be another Brett Easton Ellis, it would be Chad Colchin. His social media, or at least his Instagram, is just pictures of squirrels. And it's, it's super weird. It's super weird, but it's great at the same time. And I follow him, but he hasn't posted since, like, 2015. So every once in a while, I go back and I... I look at his squirrel pictures and I'll send him a message and then he likes the message. Oh, he's very strange, but he's a great writer. So I think um, there's a modern horror writer. His name is Thomas Ligotti. If he had social media, whoa, it would be a horrifying magic show because nobody has more disdain for the human condition or the human experience than Thomas Ligotti. Oh, when we, when we were, um, when we were talking during your last program, that was the name I was, uh, I was trying to remember his name to ask you about him. Yeah, the, the conspiracy against the human race. That's him. Oh, okay. Oh, you did mention Thomas Ligotti. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's intense. He is an intense, brilliant, 
brilliant writer. But though that's one of the weird things about like the uh, <laughs> the question of authenticity, because if he put up like funny pictures on Friday, like <laughs> would that what would you think? Would that be him anymore? Would that be Thomas Legati, or would you want him to have uh, a post that says like? Uh, Humanity was an accident. I'm here on Earth anyway. <laughs> Let's hope it ends quickly. I would, I would expect, I, I would expect him to post either nothing at all, or to post only the same photo of like whatever he would believe the the epitome of human suffering would be, over and over and over and over and over. <laughs> like whatever, whatever image he finds to be that, I think that's what he would post over and over again. Well, that's the profile pic. <laughs> <laughs> is that what they call being on brand oh yeah for sure yeah that's very on brand for him hmm. i i literally i i started reading the conspiracy against the human race and um i i ended up getting distracted because i i'm i'm reading something for uh an instagram live this sounds so cheesy i'm reading something for an instagram live uh interview that i'm doing with another author so i'm reading she's reading she's She's reading two of my books. I'm reading two of hers. And um, we're going to do this thing like next weekend or whatever. But um, I was reading Conspiracy Against the Human Race. So to go from dripping with darkness to her beautiful prose and beautiful, like uplifting emotional story, it's so dramatically different. So I even told her, her name is Leah. I was like, Leah, like, whoa <laughs> i just went from one thing to yours and it's a breath of fresh air she's a brilliant writer um but to go from one to the other was a mistake on my part it's like getting the bends mm-hmm. wow yeah it was wild you know um we, we kind of veered off the topic a little bit earlier but there there was a, a slight question that i that was dogging me a little bit earlier that i thought might be decent to ask regarding your time as a screenwriter, do you, do you find um, writing horror for the screen to require a different set of skills or do you have a preference for writing horror or for the screen over the book or vice versa? Oh, that's a cool question. Uh, I found writing for the screen, it's easier. I think it's easier to write a screenplay than it is a short story or, or a novel because I don't love this has always been a crutch for me. I don't like defining race and I don't like writing too descriptively about what my characters look like unless it's super important to the character itself. So in a screenplay, you're not really meant to give too much description of the character. Like, oh, this is a woman in her 20s. She's pretty. That's it. Something like that would be adequate for a screenplay. Whereas in a short story, typically people will want more. So I definitely find writing for, you know, screenplay or, or stage uh, format is so much easier than short story, but I prefer short story and novel writing over screen or stage writing. Interesting. Do you think you might see yourself writing for the screen anytime in the future? I would love to. I, I would love to write, um, um, I've been wanting to experiment with audio drama, which I think could be a lot of fun, like a, 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 a fiction audio podcast kind of thing. I think that would be a lot of fun to do. Um, I've had a couple stories. I have my first book is in audio format and I've had a few other stories done. 
uh, the, there's been readings of them. And then I had one of them. I didn't have it done. The, this guy took it upon himself to produce it. He took one of my stories and produced it as like a 25 minute audio play with sound effects and everything. It was brilliant. And I, I can't even read the story anymore. I'd rather just listen to his version of my story because it's just incredible. And um, that really kind of inspired me. I was like, man, that would be so much fun to write something specifically for that, um, I guess, uh, venue or whatever. I think that would be a lot of fun. Awesome. So another big question, how has quarantine been treating you? <laughs> well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, <laughs> at the beginning of this thing, uh, my school, uh, that I work at, um, middle of March, I guess, we shut down. And at the end of March, I had coronavirus. So that was an interesting couple weeks, I guess. Um, I, I actually, I was at, uh, you guys were very nice enough to accommodate changing the time. I was at the doctor today and the, the doctor was asking me again about what had happened when I had coronavirus, because I guess they like to keep track of that obviously for obviously, you know, reasons, but, um, the most significant one was that I was paralyzed for a night. So that was, that was interesting. <laughs> um, that's strange. Yeah. 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 That's the weirdest one that I've heard anybody. Ha I mean, I I'm very lucky. Like I'm still here, you know, like I'm very, very blessed to still be around, but being paralyzed was really, 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 really intense. And I had a 103 degree fever at the same time. Um, you know, then, then the usual symptoms set in from there uh, that you've heard about. But during that time, I, I'm, I was, I MFA, one of the masters that I'm working with, and I wrote an entire novel. I wrote an entire young adult uh, sci-fi horror novel uh, during quarantine and during uh you know I, I was working on it while i had coronavirus <laughs> and you know those particular chapters when i go back and read them that's it's strange because i could i could see it for myself i think like for anybody else reading it they wouldn't notice anything but i know in my head this is where i got to that and there's a there's a marked difference between in my mind what came before coronavirus when i started writing it to when I had it and continued writing it. Cause I took maybe, I took a week off from working on it to before I started going back in. So I started to feel a little bit better. And wait, so before this, you were, you didn't mention that before you were paralyzed. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's, was it just like you were you were lying down like you were sick and then you gradually realized you'd become paralyzed. That's exactly what happened. Yeah. I, I had, um, I was laying in bed. I was laying in the center of the bed and I had just spoken to my mom on the phone to tell her what was going on and to tell her like, cause I had just seen her. So she ended up getting it. Oh, my brother got it. Cause they, they're together. They live together. He got sick. She got sick. I got sick. And I had told her, man, I'm, 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 I'm going to check my temperature really quick. I, I don't know what's going on here. And I didn't really, I didn't have a thermometer because I'm an adult male who, <laughs> you know, I'm a grown man who doesn't have a thermometer. My friends, um, 
my friend's beautiful, super sweet wife actually the next day dropped off a thermometer for me. It was really lovely. Like she put it on my front stoop and then I saw her from the window and I was like, oh, hopefully I see you soon. <laughs> she got in the car and drove off. She waved and that was that. Um, very sweet of her. But yeah, I, I was literally laying in bed. I was watching a movie. I was watching Daniel Isn't Real, which is on Shudder and it's brilliant. Um, it's just me making a horror recommendation there. Oh, watching this amazing that. movie, loving every second of it. And I was like, I'm going to turn off the light. And then I tried to move and I couldn't. And I was like, huh, this is a new feeling. I couldn't do anything. Could not do anything. So I, I ended up laying just, and I never sleep like this. I never sleep sitting up unless I'm on a couch, I guess. Unless I'm sitting on a couch, I could fall asleep. But in bed, I was watching the movie. Movie ended. It, my TV cycled into the power save mode where it shows like the screensaver. And then a half an hour later, that turned off and I was just laying there. The light was on and I was like, I can't move. I can't turn off the light. I can't turn the TV off. Nothing. And then I fell asleep. Wow. And you woke up able to move again. I woke up able to move again. Yeah. And that's how you found out you had the coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah. The fever. The fever is the thing that really clued me in because I, I don't get fevers very often, if ever. That was the that was the thing that I was like, oh, I'm in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just so happened that, you know, where, where I teach, um, we got hit pretty bad and we're getting hit really bad now, (laughs) but we were getting, we got hit pretty bad at that time. So. And when did you, um, decide that you were going to write this book while you had coronavirus and while you were in quarantine? I had, cause I had started it. Uh, I, I finished sort of uh, almost all of act one. And then I need, I knew I needed to keep going with it because I wasn't going to let being sick slow me down. And I, I, at the time I was writing a half an hour every morning, um, which is something my, one of my writing mentors kind of ingrained in me. And I didn't want that to slow down, like no matter what. So I was writing that half hour every month, more often than not, I was going like two hours, but you know, I limited myself to a half hour at least. And, you know, I took a few days when I was sick, like maybe almost a week, I'd say. And then I just went right back into it. And even though I was a week into my quarantine and I was getting phone calls and I I have to give credits to Suffolk County Board of Health. They were sharp as a knife in reaching out to me, checking on me multiple times while I had it. One of their nurses dropped off masks, dropped off gloves dropped off hand sanitizer which i still have right here this was dropped off by a suffolk county nurse there was uh four bottles of it i still have three and um they really went above and beyond and uh, i got tested i got tested at a private facility first their results were taking too long i got tested at stony um yeah i got tested at stony brooks campus because they had the you know the emergency setup situation both results uh the stony work results came back first i confirmed that i had it then the private company results came back confirmed that i had it and then actually uh after i gave it 18 days they told me to wait at the time they were saying 18 days it wasn't 14 days at that time it was 18 so i waited my 18 days in quarantine they scheduled a follow-up test in brentwood at the, the the facility there went Again, the nurses and staff gave me 
bags of hand sanitizer, gloves, masks. Amazing. Took my test, got the results, and I was clear. Right. For had for antibodies, they were long gone, according to the doctor. Um, which is not good. I actually said, Oh, that's not good. And he's like, Yeah, no, that's not good for anybody. Oh, because the immunity's gone. Yep. Oof. So I did talk to it. Well, I got tested a couple of weeks ago because I wasn't feeling well. And I went and I was like, I just want to be sure. They tested me again. And, and they, the doctor was like, listen, like, even if you don't have the antibodies, the likelihood of you getting it again is very slim. But there is a guy who's gotten it four times. Oh, it's awful. Yeah. So, you know, wow. it's still very up in the air with everything. But yeah, I... Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I didn't want to let something stop me from writing. And I was attending my MFA meetings. We were doing our weekly meetings online, of course. You know, everything was online. And um, they were, they, you know, my professor was like, listen, if you need to take some time. And I was like, nope, nope, we're not taking any time. I couldn't taste or smell anything for like two weeks. And, and she was like, listen, you know, you can take some time. And I was like, absolutely not. Let's just get this done. Let's let's do wow. it. Yeah. So I, I it took about, so I started it, let's say, in, um, Started in February and I finished it completely in April. So I wrote uh, a full YA novel in uh, February, March, in three months. That's very cool. Thank you. It was, it was fun. It's, it's a lot of fun. I'm revising it now. I'm in revision on it now. And I, I'm very happy with the revisions that I'm making. Um, I'm actually, it's funny. I'm, I'm ramping up the horror. For some reason, my first time through, I didn't have as much horror. This time ramping it up Ooh, that's exciting <laughs> yeah i'm having a lot of fun with it maybe the first time you, you thought we're thinking why i didn't want it to be too horrifying yeah and then i, I read uh i read a ya novel that was published by freeform which is owned by disney and the book was a total bloodbath so <laughs> i was like like this is ya like this is something you would see it literally was like a Saw movie, but starring teenagers. <laughs> oh, jeez! It was it was a great book. I loved it. I loved it. I want to read the follow up to it, but it was brutal. It was brutal, and it was a little. It was a little, and I I know I hesitate to say this. It was a little transphobic as well, and I was kind of surprised to see something like that published by a huge company like that. So I was like, this is kind of funny that this would be in there. But I did love the book. It was great. Wow. Peter, do you have um, some of the questions that you had uh, emailed? I was thinking about some of our standard questions. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, we, we inevitably always have questions like, oh, um, what kind of food have you been eating during quarantine? Have you been um, leaning more towards ordering out or have you been preparing more stuff at home? I love that. Uh, yeah, it actually has. It, um, when it, when I when it first started happening, I dedicated myself to becoming the best instant ramen chef that I could. I had cases of this stuff. I still have cases of this stuff. I That's love it. Inspired. I'm, oh my god, I'm addicted to ramen. It's insane. I watch YouTube videos of ramen. I want it. I'm going to get a subscription box service for like traditional Japanese ramen and Korean ramen. I'm so hyped about it. Anyway, sorry. So I started um, 
mixing and playing around with different ramen recipes and stuff. And some I would find on, I'm on the ramen Reddit. I would look at what those guys were doing and I'd be inspired. So I, I make a hell of a good breakfast ramen with egg and bacon and a little chili uh, powder really kicks it up and some butter as well. I'm also not a fan of um, the soup aspect of ramen. That's the worst part to me. So I don't put a ton of water in my ramen. It's all about the noodles to me. So um, I also got really sneaky good at making a Thai peanut sauce inspired ramen. Um, you melt uh, normal peanut butter, whatever, you know, obviously crunchy wouldn't work all that well. So if you have some, you know, smooth um, peanut butter, you melt it down. You can add a little bit of water or maybe, you know, a little bit of butter to it to help, you know, make it thin, thin it out a little bit. And this is the weird part. And this is where I might lose some people, a tiny bit of garlic salt to the peanut butter. And you put that with the noodles, you mix it up and you can eat it warm but it's best cold. Best answers we've had to that. <laughs> the best thing about ramen is how adaptable it is as well. Like, you know, let's say you made a steak the night before. Um, I, I, I had um, stomach surgery, so I can't eat a whole lot, but you know, you'll make a steak or whatever. I'll have like half of a steak and then the rest of it, you know, put it in the fridge, whatever the next day, slice it up, throw it on some ramen. Add a little, you know, add whatever, add a little chili. I like chili powder. I think that really helps it a lot. And, you know, a little bit of butter and you're in business. See, we're going on a whole ramen tangent now. This is, now this is my conversation. I'm taking over now. <laughs> what would be another one of our good quarantine questions? Do you, do you have any words for folks that are listening to this podcast? Maybe a generation from now, maybe there are some historical archivist that's uncovered this recording and you want to share some wisdom with folks that have no idea what happened during the quarantine during coronavirus. Do you have any wisdom you'd like to share with them? Uh, I hope uh, the lessons that we learned during this have helped during the climate wars. Um... <laughs> the resource wars. <laughs> I'm just picturing like a future like in uh, Ready Player One, you know that. <laughs> like I, I was going to Fallout Universe, but Ready Player One works Ooh. as well. You took, you went dark. <laughs> but yeah, I, I would hope that, um, I would hope that we don't have to wear masks anymore. Personally, I love it. I love wearing a mask everywhere I go. I love, I don't, I don't want people talking to me. I don't want people, I love people. Like I am, I went from being like Mr. Social. Oh, I'm going to go out. I'm going to go get a cocktail. I'm going to have a steak dinner. I went from being that guy to being like, I love wearing my mask. I love putting my hoodie up. Stay at least six to 10 feet away from me. I don't want to talk to you. Get as far away as humanly possible. We need to beat this thing. That's what's important right now. But like, I would hope that in the future, maybe we are wearing masks uh, still. I would hope not. I hope that the vaccine worked for everybody. I hope it does. Science is a beautiful thing. I hope in the future we really trust science more again. That would be nice. Um, that would be that would be an ideal space to live in. Um, Why do we have to say these things? <laughs> right, right. But yeah, I would hope that you know. Um, I hope that we don't get as high as they're projecting. 
I hope people who have lost people are handling and, and dealing with their emotions and they should know that it's important no matter what. Uh, don't worry about what other people think. You are allowed to grieve in your own time and your own way. Um, this is really terrible. And I hope your families are safe and I hope the climate wars and, and uh, resource wars are going in your favor. And um, I hope uh, science wins out in the end. That knock on wood is for the podcast that I just did right there. <laughs> I think I covered the most important questions of the quarantine conversation. We, we, got the, we got the food one and we got the inspirational message for the generations ahead of us. There, there, what, there is one of the one about um, if you've got in touch with anybody again. I thought really? that was, that's an interesting one. I've, you know what, I've, I've gotten in touch with um, other authors that I probably um, would not have gotten in touch with because of, um, you know, being home and, and having more time to dedicate to the craft and dedicate to social media and, and stuff like that. So I am very thankful. And, and also a lot of um, book critics and, um, you know, booktubers and bookstagram people and stuff. Um, that's been really wonderful, really talking to these people and, you know, learning about their process and what they enjoy and, and listening to their critical takes on, you know, popular uh, fiction and whatnot. But um, yeah, I would say getting in touch with, with uh, you know, other authors has been, that's been the thing that's been most exciting the most. Uh, I speak to quite a few every day and um, they're all brilliant and we all send each other our books, which is cool. So like, you know, I have a nice little book exchange situation going on with some authors and um, it just helps everybody out. And that's probably, and I've said this before, but the horror community is very accepting and very supportive of its own in that if one of us has success, you know, rising tides raise all ships. And that's really how it feels in the horror community. So I'm all about, you know, reading someone's work and talking about it and singing its praises you know, where I've been very, there's a lot of uh, out right now and you guys are in the library, you know, I mean, my God, you've got Mexican Gothic, which just won the Goodreads, I think, I think it just won the Goodreads uh, best horror book of the year, I'm pretty sure. I think they announced that today. Um, you have Stephen Graham Jones, The Only Good Indians. Stephen Graham Jones is so cool. He is such a cool guy. He's who I would want to be. He is just awesome. Um, Michael David Wilson. We're living in a really great time for horror, right? Like Paul Tremblay is writing like, uh, my God, you know, Stephen King has a new book out for God's sake. So it's Joe Hill, his son, the heir to the throne. We're living in the golden age. It's weird. Like people talk about the golden age of TV. We're living in a golden age of horror too. And get them all at the Brentwood library. Like they have, they even have my book there. That's a great list of uh, recommendations. That's great to uh, include on the on a library podcast. We should be <laughs> asking everybody like the, a list of their favorite books is one of our questions. Oh man, my my favorite my favorite book that I've read this year. I have two. Um, one of them is horror. One of them is not horror. Um, 
if I'm choosing, you know, and I'm not, I'm not going to say short story collections because I, I feel like that's, you know, that's a good way to get a sample for an author's abilities, right? So I won't name any collections, but my two favorite books, um, one of them is a novella, actually. It's called The Girl in the Video by Michael David Wilson. That's my favorite novella of the year. It is brilliant. It's heartbreaking. It's terrifying. It's got probably my favorite cover of the year. It is just vibrant and colorful and intense. Uh, I love it. And then um, I think my, you know, my favorite fiction novel that I've read this year is probably, so far anyway, um, is for the, the Instagram live thing that I'm doing, this author, Leah Lindemann, her novel, Wisps of Gold, uh, which is about the Canadian gold rush, um, turn of the century kind of thing. It's quite good, quite good. And she is a brilliant, brilliant writer and just such a sweet, giving, brilliant person as well. So I think those are probably my two favorites um, of the year, I guess. You know, I read a lot of short story collections this year and, you know, I I, I hesitate to name those just because I, I feel like, you know, because there's so much on offer in those, it's hard to top a short story collection. So I wanted to stick to those too. Hmm. Very nice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great. We, you know, we had talked about um, Lovecraft in our what, the last time we talked, and yeah. are you are you a regular part of the of the podcast about him, or is he's uh, like I think that you had mentioned him being a bit ambivalent towards him, in you know, light of uh, yeah I... situation. Well, you know, if he was around today, he'd be a racist and he was a racist then he would he would I would hope hope against hope that he wouldn't be a racist. And towards the end of his life, he did change. He, he did show genuine contrition and did change his um, feelings towards um, other ethnic groups and people of color and whatnot. So. I I I appreciate Lovecraft for all that he has given us, all of the material that he's given us, the, the cr basically creating the weird fiction, weird horror genre single-handedly, that's insane to me. I, I think Stephen King today would say that the greatest horror writer of all time is still H.P. Lovecraft. And you know, mm -hmm. Stephen King is literally the greatest horror writer that's ever lived and probably ever will live. So but, of all time, Stephen King is your top writer. Yeah. I would say so just because of the sheer. So I, I look at Stephen King differently, differently, right? I've only read two Stephen King books. I've read On Writing and I've read Thinner. That's it. That's all wow. I've ever read by Stephen King. However, I've seen almost every single Stephen King movie. I've watched and read almost every interview with him. And I, there is no more commercially successful American writer in all of history. And there is no more... Someone who has that level of success should view himself as vastly superior to so many others. And Stephen King doesn't. He, I've met him. He's, first of all, he's enormous. He's giant of a person, but also he's humble. He is sweet. He gave my mom a humongous hug because she loves him. She's read everything he's ever written. He was the sweetest guy. And so for me, there's a lot of horror authors who are like, oh, Stephen King, his old stuff is good, but his new stuff, it's like, shut up. 
just shut up. Have you read The Outsider? The Outsider is supposedly amazing. The, out, the HBO show was fantastic. So shut up. He's he's Stephen King. Just stop. So to me, yes, he is the gold standard. Um, I do love Lovecraft, and I, he gave us so much. Robert Aikman is another one that's brilliant. The King in Yellow. Uh, that's not Aikman. That's oh, Chambers. No. But you know, it's oh, okay. it's still there. There's so many. I, Lovecraft gave up the greatest bad guy. If you view him as a bad guy, I actually talked about it the other day. Like maybe, maybe Cthulhu's not that bad a guy. Uh, you know, the idea is Cthulhu has dreamt all of this. If he's dreamt all of the horrible parts, then he's dreamt all the beautiful parts. So if he wakes up and it's all over, who knows what the world would look like if that's the case? I don't know. <laughs> so like is Cthulhu a bad guy is Cthulhu the ultimate you know in in, in all of literature is, is he the ultimate bad guy I'd say sure or the ultimate villain figure I guess but you know that's all Lovecraft all of this and Cthulhu for... apologism here I'm editing this out <laughs> <laughs> I just watched a movie that has Cthulhu in it and um, I've never seen Cthulhu done quite so well as oh. he was done in this movie. It was shocking how good he looked and how he acted. It was, it, the, the biggest problem I have, right, is like, if, if the whole idea is if Cthulhu wakes up, the world is over. So the idea is like, it, it wouldn't matter because the world would blink from existence essentially, or cataclysmic events would happen and everything would be over. In this movie, he's essentially a giant monster at the bottom of the ocean. And um, he looked great, but he wasn't strictly Cthulhu, but they, in you know in reading about the movie they're like yeah we called him cthulhu because that's what it's supposed to be so i was like mm, okay you don't quite understand the mythos but i'm into it oh. lovecraft <laughs> was right before you said that i was about to say he's someone who the move that no movie really seems to ever capture what it is about what he's describing no, no, for sure not um the the color out of space the new version of the color out of space is good um, I had a hard time watching it because the, the little, I don't know if you watch The Haunting of Hell House or Hill House or whatever, but there's oh, yeah. a, the, the little boy with the glasses who is like the cutest little kid actor I think I've ever seen in my life. He was in The Haunting of Hill House and he's in The Color Out of Space and something terrible happens to him in The Color Out of Space. And when that happened, I was like, I'm out. Like this movie's completely lost me because this kid is so adorable. I don't ever want to see harm come to him in a movie ever. Um, but the Colorado Space does a good job of, of you know, uh, translating that Lovecraftian oh, ethereal okay. horror. Um, there's a movie version of Dagon that I love. Um, it's a, a Spanish co-production directed by Stuart Gordon, who's the guy who did Reanimator. And that's very, very, very good for me. Dagon is also my favorite of all of the Lovecraftian um, inventions, even though Dagon is technically a an ancient uh, Babylonian figure, and it's also referenced in the Bible. Um, Dagon is definitely my favorite, like, boogeyman of the Lovecraftian mythos, for sure. I've oh, written yeah. about Dagon multiple times, yeah. Is that because it's more closely linked with something real, like you could believe, believe in it? I think so, and also because we live on Long Island, and Dagon is very firmly rooted in the ocean. He, he's he's a, a fish god, essentially, so 
I think I make that connection more. And also I'm, I'm Portuguese. So, um, you know, Portugal is a, a seafaring nation and the Dagon movie actually sort of transposes the mythology to almost, it's supposed to be sort of like a representation of Portugal. So I make that connection too. Um, but yeah, Dagon is, is that, that movie is excellent. It's very, very good. Interesting. Some movies to see too. Yeah. I'm giving uh, book recommendations, movies, everything. <laughs> you know, I'm treasuring the possibility that when I'm writing my description for this podcast episode, I, I just get to throw in Cthulhu. And that's, if that's not clickbait already. <laughs> I hope so. I hope that works. <laughs> I, uh, there, you know, there's, there's also, um, there's a great documentary about Lovecraft that's on Amazon Prime right now too. I can't remember the name of it, but if it's it, it's literally, it's I think it's called like in, Dreams in Darkness, H.P. Lovecraft or something like that. Um, that does a really nice job of um, talking about the mythos and talking about him also. And there's some brilliant interviews with uh, Neil Gaiman is in there, Guillermo del Toro is in there, um, Caitlin Kiernan is in there a lot of uh oh ramsey campbell is in there as well so a lot of brilliant authors and filmmakers and stuff are uh interviewed talking about lovecraft so and also the the leading lovecraft scholar st joshi is uh prominently featured in that documentary as well so if you're interested in learning more about lovecraft there's uh you know that great documentary on amazon prime right now that's cool though. i have to watch that too yeah <laughs> You know what's weird? He um, he sort of started the whole idea of the the ancient aliens with his stories, which we now take as almost like a genre of nonfiction. Yeah, he absolutely did because you know the idea of the the great old ones, um, they were here long before we were, and then as mankind evolved, once Cthulhu began to slumber, and humankind evolved read things into the realm of that's not real that's not a real thing but yeah you're absolutely right ancient aliens is uh, you could make the you could make the argument and i don't think that 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 prominent scientist uh, the one who's in the meme or whatever i don't think he would argue that i i think he would probably be like yeah i think that's a fair assessment because he's a he's actually a, he may look silly the guy who's like oh, i'm not saying it's aliens but it's aliens that guy or whatever oh yeah um yeah i can't he's he's greek i don't remember his name but he really is quite brilliant to listen to him speak. So I feel like he gets a raw deal because of that meme. Again, social media corrupting everything. I, I didn't expect you to say that, but that he's, uh, I don't know if I've actually heard him say much. That guy, just thinking that's interesting to know that he's really brilliant. Yeah, I have to admit my own bias was informed largely by that meme. I mean, I've <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge fan of strange science channel shows, and I've always just sort of dis dismissed any sort of show that he's been on just simply because of that. But now now you're bringing me around because, I mean, yeah, there is, there is a kernel of truth in that. Yeah, like if you think about, you know, the, the myth of the Kraken, right? All that was was a Humboldt squid. Right. We didn't know what a Humboldt squid was until one watched ashore and we were like, wow, is that a mythological sea beast? And then science was like, no, it's apparently some sort of squid. <laughs> so th these things, you know, people, yeah, I, this is going to sound silly. I'm going to sound ridiculous, but um, 
of all of like the the mythological creatures or 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 things like that bigfoot right is always like the one that's always the one that people talk about or whatever there is a group that is applying the scientific method to trying to find one to kill it and bring it to science to study so it can be marked as a creature that exists that's the only way that it can be marked as a creature that exists in science to protect it you have to kill one isn't that crazy that people want to kill bigfoot well yeah that that, that the purpose of to preserve this uh, species is to kill one to bring it before science and out it to the world yeah that is true and if we finally got evidence of bigfoot that would also be the saddest day in bigfoot history mm-hmm yep it'd be dead right if there's you know obviously like if there's only one that would be terrible <laughs> but it's just it's I, I find stuff like that interesting because something is only a myth or something is only unexplainable until you can get it until you can find a way to get it right so Again, you know, the, the Kraken is just a giant squid. And granted, those things get huge. Humboldt squids get enormous. Um, you know, dragons could have just been, um, what's it called? Uh, I wrote about them um, in the collection. Komodo dragons. Komodo dragons could have been the mythological inspiration for dragons. Um, alligators and crocodiles get ginormous. It's not, it's not out of the realm of possibility that a Komodo dragon could get like 45 feet long. Who's to say? We took a weird direction with, <laughs> with the conversation. I feel so bad. Your listeners are going to be like, what is this guy talking about? He's so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> He's talking about Bigfoot, for God's sakes. This is a Long Island. We don't even have that here. I don't know. I've always been fascinated by stuff like that. And I think it goes into the horror writer thing, right? Like, mm-hmm. if the world is just the world, right? If everything is just the world, it would be so boring. Wouldn't it just be so boring? Science is beautiful. Science is magic. It's great when science can make it, when science comes up with a vaccine for something that's killing 200,000 people, chef's kiss. But things, if weird things don't happen in a weird way or in a way that we can't explain, then variety in the spice of life is just not there. This has been one of my, my favorite interviews. Thank you. I love it. Thank you so much. I think we can call it a night for now. What do you think, Peter? Yeah, that was a that was a great conversation. I see the. the I, I'm thinking that Robert will help us uh, with a good clickbait-worthy title, and I'm thinking maybe something like Peter Carmona speaks with the instant ramen king of Long Island. <laughs> I love that. I love that title. Uh, oh. Um, would you like to share with the audience um, any ways that they can contact you via social media? Sure. Yeah. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Robert Otone, R-O-B-E-R-T-O-T-T-O-N-E, all one word. And you can find me on uh, www.spookyhousepress.com and uh, join our mailing list. There's all kinds of uh, fun stuff. We have, uh, you know, some, some, we don't send out a lot of email or anything, but you know, you can find uh, my book, Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares at the Brentwood Library. Um, it is also on store shelves at uh, some local bookstores here on Long Island, including uh, the one really big local bookstore that everybody knows uh, <laughs> that that does have it on the shelf. 
And um, you can, of course, find it online on the omnipresent shopping website that everybody uses all of the time. So you can find it in a variety of places. And the, the, we, we always like to say, wherever fine books are sold, you can find Her Infernal Name and Other Nightmares. And I, I, I'd be... I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. I'm uh, currently on Goodreads and Listopia's list of the best horror of 2020. So very proud of that. <laughs> Robert, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Oh, thank you for having me. It's, it's been awesome. I love it. I love talking with you guys. I love talking about all this stuff that we touched on. It's great. Great experience. Thank you again. A pleasure. You, a pleasure. Thanks again to Robert for joining us in today's podcast. And thanks to all of you for listening along during our Quarantine Conversation series. And stay tuned, because Brentwood Stories still has more to offer. Today's music is brought to you as always by Dr. Turtle. Find his music and more at freemusicarchive.org.